Amen. Well, good morning, church family. It's a, welcome, it's a joy to welcome you here this morning. We're grateful that you're here with us to worship Jesus together, as we've already sung about. If you have your Bibles, please open to Esther chapter 4 as we pick back up in our sermon series of, out of Esther entitled God's Sovereignty in Silence and in Suffering. God's Sovereignty in Silence and Suffering. This week, as we look at chapter 4, where my title this morning is When Evil Seems to Prevail, this is part two. Um, two weeks ago prior to Easter, we looked at part one. So let me kind of get you back into uh, the context of the book of Esther. So in chapter three of Esther, because of Haman, the antagonist, because of his hostility, and because of King Ahasuerus's stupidity, all of the Jews in the Persian Empire are now in mortal danger because of an edict that has been decreed that all Jews can be exterminated. Now, according to scholars, at this time in history, there were somewhere between 10 and 15 million Jews dispersed all across the Persian Empire, and now all of them are at risk due to this edict, and there is no place for them to run. I want to remind you that in Esther chapter 1, we are told that King Ahasuerus, the king of the Persian Empire, or King Xerxes, he's also called that, he ruled all the way from India all the way to Ethiopia. So the Jews scattered throughout the empire, there's nowhere really for them to go. They can't even go back to Israel or within Israel's national borders because guess who is king there? King Ahasuerus. There is nowhere that they could go. Now, at the end of chapter 3, it seems as though evil has prevailed. Haman and the king are sitting down and feasting in the citadel above the city, and down below, all of the people are in confusion as to the meaning of the edict. So the question is, where is God in all of this? He is silent, it's seemingly silent. Where is God, and what's going to happen next? How will Mordecai and Queen Esther respond? Well, that's what we're going to find out here in Esther chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, let me read that quickly as we begin. It says, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then, then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn why this was, uh, what this was and why it was. And Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews, 10,000 talents. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. 
Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and of, and of the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he, might, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. When Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now here's three things I want us to see from this text when evil may prevail. Three things that I think come into focus for us today. The first is this. When evil seems to prevail, it is appropriate to weep, fast, mourn, and repent. When evil seems to prevail all around us, it is appropriate for God's people to weep, to mourn, to fast, and repent. If you look back at verses 1 through 3, you will see this very clearly. It says there that when Mordecai learned all that had been done, what had been decreed against the Jews, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter and clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So what, after this edict goes out all across the city, we find, Mordecai, um, we find Mordecai here lamenting over what has happened in the city. Now, his actions are in line with many Old Testament accounts of God's people who find themselves in grief and at loss, and, and also those who are demonstrating their repentance. Listen to what uh, God says, uh, listen to what, I'm sorry, Jacob says about um, his son Joseph in Genesis 37 when Jacob thought Joseph had been killed. It says, then Jacob tore his garments, just like Mordecai, he put on sackcloth, and he mourned for his sons many days. All throughout the Old Testament, there are examples of God's people tearing their clothes, putting on sackcloth and ashes, weeping and lamenting over what is facing them. Now, in our Western mindset, it's so easy for us to think that Mordecai is just putting on a show. Like he's just publicly out weeping and wailing and drawing unnecessary attention to himself. And that's what we think because we, we think in our Western mindset that we should keep our grief and sorrow to ourselves. But in ancient times, grief was expressed loudly and publicly all the way up through Jesus's day but Mordecai's grief and sorrow they demonstrate very important things that all of us have to understand first it absolutely shows where he stands in regards to the king's edict 
When Mordecai tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth, and goes to the king's gate, it says to everyone paying attention, this is evil, this is wrong, and this is worth lamenting and weeping over publicly. This is absolutely, this, showing, this is showing that Mordecai is absolutely opposed to the evil coming on his people. He's not just taking it in stride and letting it go unbothered. We have to remember that in our culture as well. So many times Christians remain silent and do not show their displeasure over the evil that goes on in our society. We just think, well, if we keep silent, it'll just go away. That's not what Mordecai did. He put on sackcloth and went to the king's gate. To the king's gate. Secondly, it unquestionably identified Mordecai as a part of the Jewish people. He's lamenting because he's Jewish, because he's part of the edict. Now, look what it says there. It says there that there was a great mourning among all the Jews. Mordecai is mourning along with the rest of God's people. So Mordecai had kept his identity secret for a long time. That's one of the, that's one of the compromises that he had made all through Esther up to this point. That Mordecai had compromised, and he's living a half-Persian, half-Jewish life. But right now, Mordecai is making it plain and making it public that I am Jewish and I am affected by this unjust law. He's pro pro publicly proclaiming his identity among God's people. So silence isn't an option, option for Mordecai, and I would say it's not an option for any of God's people when evil stands in front of us. Listen to what Proverbs 24, 11 through 12 says about why we can't remain silent. This is Proverbs 24, 11 and 12. He says, deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. So that's the command, that we are to deliver those who are drawn toward death, and we're to hold back those that are stumbling toward slaughter. And this is what he says. If you say, surely we did not know this, that's what we're going to say. That's our excuse. We didn't know this was happening. We, we didn't know, God. We didn't know that this evil was going on. And he says this. Does he... Does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And he, will he not render to each man according to his deeds? The point is you can't remain silent because God knows. You might say you didn't know, but God knows that you did. And that's the point. There's a third item here to take note of. Notice that even in his grief, Mordecai is still upholding the laws of Persia. Isn't that amazing? Persia just put out an edict to destroy all the Jews, and Mordecai does not go into the king's gate, past the king's gate, because no one in sackcloth and ashes is allowed to go past it. So Mordecai, even in mourning, doesn't uh, break the law of the Persians. Now this shows that Haman was wrong in his accusation against the Jews. Remember he said that you need to destroy them because they don't uphold the king's, uh, the king's laws. So here... We have all the Jews staring total annihilation in the face. Evil seems to have the upper hand. And the question is, what do they do? What do we do? They weep. They grieve. They pour out their hearts to God. They repent. And that's exactly what we should do as well. That's what we do. Listen to Joel chapter 2 where God makes this promise to His people facing evil and calamity. All through the Old Testament, God's people have faced evil and calamity time and time again. And listen to the promise God makes in Joel 2. 
He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And then he ends with this. Joel says, who knows, will he not? Who knows if he will not return and relent? So here's the question. When we're faced with evil, when evil seems to prevail, what do we do? We weep. Rightfully so. We mourn. Rightfully so. And we repent. We join in, in communion, in community with our, with our fellow people and we say we are part of the problem. We have sinned. We have brought this on ourselves and we repent. And my question for you is when is the last time you have got down on your knees and you have lamented and you have grieved and you have repented over the evil that is going on in our society? That's what God's people are called to do. When evil seems to prevail, that's what we do. Second, when evil seems to prevail, it is appropriate to use the means at our disposal. When, when, when evil seems to prevail, it is appropriate for God's people to use the means at our disposal. Look at verses 4 through 8 at what happens. It says, when Esther's young woman and her, young, and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai. She thinks he has a clothing issue, not a mourning issue. So that he might take off his sackcloth. Uh, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. And Hathak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Now, we've just discussed here in the first few verses, we've just discussed several of the spiritual means at the disposal of God's people. Mordecai's been using those means. Mordecai's been mourning and fasting and weeping and repenting and praying. He's been using those spiritual means. But now he begins to use the other means at his disposal. Now, that is so important for us to understand that, that those two things are not opposed to each other. He uses the spiritual means at his disposal, and then he uses the real, tangible, physical means at his disposal. They're not opposed to each other. All of us are called to pray and act. We are called to act and pray. We do not see those as mutually exclusive issues. It's so important we remember this truth. We use means because God uses means. I want to read you something from the London Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689. This goes back, you know, 300 plus years to what Baptists have believed about God using means in history. It says this, God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, 
so as thereby is God is neither the author of sin, nor has fellowship with any sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, that's means, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things, and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Now let me summarize that for you. Here is the simple West Tennessee Southern summary of what we just read from 300 plus years ago. God has ordained all things and accomplishes his will through means. He's free to not use them if he doesn't want to, but he chooses to use means. Now, let me give you an illustration. Some of you don't know what means means. If I have a board, a two-by-four, and I have a nail, and I want to put the nail in the two-by-four, I use a hammer. The hammer is the means of getting the nail in the board. We believe that God uses all three of those things together, the two-by-four, the nail, and the hammer, and he makes them work. We believe that God uses means, which is why, for all of history, Christians have been the first people to try to advance medical technologies because we believe we should pray for the sick and we should believe by God's good grace and according to the wisdom in which he's created us as chemical beings um, who have certain anatomies and structures and, and, and systems that work in our body, by the good grace of God, we also use the means he's given us to bring healing to people through medicine. Those are not opposed to each other. Anybody who says otherwise doesn't read their Bible where God uses means. So we absolutely pray for those who are sick, and we go to the doctor, and we put salve on it, and we get surgery, and we take chemotherapy, and we get vaccinated if we want to. We use medical means. That is the point. Okay, God uses means here, and so does Mordecai. So here's the point. What we, what, so what are the means that Mordecai uses here? First, he uses the only communication line he has with Esther to convey the situation. So the young women and eunuchs, they see Mordecai weeping and wailing. They take the news to Esther. And at this point, Esther is so isolated in the, in the palace. She's so insulated from what's going on politically in the, in the Persian Empire she has no idea, and so she sends him clothes, maybe so he can come into the king's palace. But Mordecai's like, no, I'm not coming in. I'm not coming in. That's how isolated she is. But next, what does Esther do? She sends Hathak, her most trusted eunuch who's been appointed to her, to see what the real issue is. So from here, Mordecai uses everything at his disposal to convey the situation. He explains the plot. Notice how particular the news is here. He explains the plot to kill the destruction of the Jews. He explains the money that has been exchanged that's going on. And then he even gives a copy of the decree so that Esther can read it for herself. Those are all means of trying to convince her of something. And lastly and most importantly, notice that Mordecai is seeking the help of Queen Esther. He wants political and familial help. This is the means at hand. She has the means to make a difference. She has access to the king. Mordecai, like I said, is using family means and, politically mean, and political means to seek justice for his people. But I want you to look at verse 8. This is one of the most important verses in the text. 
it says that Mordecai also gave a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. Listen, that Hathak might show it to Esther. Esther, read this. Look at it. And explain it to her and command her to go to the king. Esther, do this. Go to the king, beg his favor, plead with him, and then I want to point you to the very end of that sentence, on behalf of her people. Esther, this is not the destruction of some people out there. This is the destruction of your people. Mordecai is reminding her that these are her people. She's Jewish. She's the queen. What will Esther do? But my point is here, Christians, it is appropriate for you when facing evil to use all of the means at our disposal. We use the political means at our disposal in our country. We work to try to get legislation passed that protect innocent lives and try to promote righteousness and justice. And that is right. That doesn't mean we're consumed by it, but it means we use the means at our disposal that are given to us so that we can see things done for the flourishing of people, the protection of people, the blessing of people, and not the destruction of people. And then that brings me to the final point here. When evil seems to prevail, we come to the crossroads of faith. When evil seems to prevail, God uses this to bring us all to a crisis of faith so that we have to respond one way or another. That's what's going to happen. Evil has a way of bringing that to the forefront, doesn't it? That we can't ignore it. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. We can't sweep it under the rug. God brings us to the place where we have to really decide what is our faith made of? Look there at verses 9 through 17. Let's look at that again. It says, And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. This is Esther's dilemma. Esther now is at the crossroads of faith or the very purposes of her life, and she has a dilemma. The dilemma is first, she hasn't been called into the king for 30 days. And there is but one law. There is not a second law. There's only one law. If you go to the king without being invited... If the king does not extend the golden scepter, you are to be killed. That is the law of the land. If he extends the scepter, Esther says, I will be spared. Now let's remember from the context of Esther, this is very important. Let's remember that Queen Vashti, back in chapter 1, is banished for not coming to the king when he summoned her. Vashti doesn't come when she's summoned and she's banished. Now it's the reverse for, king, for Queen Esther. Will Esther be banished or executed for coming to the king when he does not summon her? Is that going to happen? But here, even Esther is attempting to uphold the Persian law. She's saying, I, I want to obey the law. I don't want to be just a rebel rouser or a revolutionary. The law says that I, I, that I cannot come unless I'm called. But notice Mordecai's response to Esther's dilemma in verses 12 through 14. It says, And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. 
For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father, father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. There are three main points here to, to, Mordecai, to Mordecai. There are three main points here that Mordecai makes. One, he tells Esther, don't think for a second that you can escape by silence or withdrawing into the castle. Your family is also in danger. You're Jewish, remember? But there's a second point. The second point is that God will save his people. Esther, you're not going to escape, but God will save his people. His promises to protect and preserve his covenant to Abraham and David ensure it. God will keep his promises that have been made to his people. And so this is Mordecai's absolute statement of faith in the book of Esther to the God of Israel. But there's a caveat here. There's a caveat that Esther can't miss. Just because God promises to save the Jews doesn't mean he'll save you. Don't you remember that, Esther? Just because God promises to save his people, that does not mean he will save you. It doesn't mean he'll save you or your father's family. And that reveals an important lesson for us on God's sovereignty. All of us need to learn this. God will always keep his promises to his people. Amen? Not one promise will God ever break. But there is nothing anyone can do to stop God's promises. But God doesn't. Here's the point. There is nothing God, there's nothing anyone can do to stop God's promises. But God doesn't have to keep his promises through you. Esther, God doesn't have to keep his promises through you. God doesn't have to keep them through me. God doesn't have to keep them through any of you. He can use anyone he wants, anytime he wants. And I want to remind you that God pointed this out very clearly to Elijah, that great Old Testament promise who tended to be very whiny and complained a lot. And what did he whine about? I'm God's only prophet. I'm the only one who's able to save Israel. I'm the only one that's left that hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. And God smacks him on the back of the head and says, No, you dummy. I have 7,000 prophets in Israel who've never bowed the knee to Baal. You're not mission critical, Elijah. I can keep my promises with or without you. Remember that. Have a little humility. Have a little humility. No one person is mission critical in God's kingdom save Jesus. Amen. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He will keep his promises. But notice the third part of Mordecai's argument. Mordecai says the right way forward is plain to see. Esther, is this not the very purpose of your life? Esther, is this not why you're here? Have you not been placed here for such a time as this? Has God not been working silently all throughout history to bring you, Esther, to this very point? to this very position, for this very problem. This is the crossroads of faith for Esther. Look at verses 15 through 17, how Esther responds to the crossroads of faith. It says, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and the young women also will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So her fragment, here's the point. Why, why is this the crossroads of faith for Esther? Let me wrap this up. Her fragmented and 
and splintered identity cannot continue. If you remember, she was born Hadassah, the daughter of a Jewish family, a descendant of Israel's royal line through King Saul, a descendant of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But she's been raised in a Persian culture. She's Esther now. She's the queen of all of Persia. That's who she is. And now she must choose. She has two options. Option one is silence and withdrawal. She can just be silent and go back into the palace. And Mordecai is warned against that. He says this option, the reason this option is bad is because this option is faithless. This is the faithless option. This is the option that is choosing to save yourself personally and physically at the expense of cutting yourself off from God's covenant people. You and your family's house will perish. This is basically choosing temporal comfort and temporal life over eternal life. The question is, Esther, do you really believe God's promises or not? Do you really believe God's promises or not? That is the question of faith. But what's the second option? The second option for Esther is to risk it all and trust God. Risk it all and trust God. Trust God to work even when you're not sure of the outcome. It might cost you your life, but it won't cost you eternity. Hear me. It might cost you your life, but it won't cost you eternity. It's the difference between being faithless and being faithful. And what does Esther do? Esther chooses her heritage of faith over seemingly Persian protection. Let me give you the application. The question for us is how will we respond? How will we respond when our culture presses us to conform beyond what the Bible will allow? When they threaten us with lawsuits and imprisonment? When they call us names and suppress our voices and persecute us unjustly? At the crossroads, will we be found faithful or faithless? Will we choose temporary comforts of silence? Or will we boldly stand with Jesus? Now as I conclude, I want to make two gospel applications here. Two things that I want to say very clearly as I close. All of us, all of us in this room, all of us for all of eternity, are in the same place as the Jews here in Esther at this point in the story. All of us are doomed unless God sends a deliverer. All of us, unless God intervenes on our behalf, we are without hope. This is the good news of the gospel, that God did send a deliverer, and it wasn't Joseph. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't David. It wasn't Daniel. And it wasn't Esther. Even though all of them played an integral part in God's history to bring about deliverance for God's people. No, in history, we know that God Himself came in the person of Jesus. He came to rescue us from the edict that was put out against us. And what is that edict? It was the edict written against us because of our sin. And it's found in Ezekiel 18.20. It says this, The soul who sins shall die. That is the edict written over all of our lives. You are a sinner and you stand condemned because of the law. The edict has been passed against you and you are doomed unless God acts. And for the Christian, we know that Christ is who acted 
to undo that edict by taking the punishment we deserve as our substitute. So, if you don't know Jesus, you need to know that you stand accountable to God and you stand condemned because of your sin unless you repent and turn to the deliverer that God has supplied in Jesus. So come to Jesus. Know that the edict is there. Know that you are guilty and know that a deliverer has been provided. And his name is Jesus. And lastly, for the Christian, remember the truth that all of us will face evil in this life. All of us will face trials and difficulties. And when they come, the question is, will we be found faithless or faithful? And I'll tell you that the same, this is the same solution there as well. The solution for the Christian is to cling to Jesus. Cling to him by faith. Grab him by faith and do not let go and say, Jesus, hold me right now. May I stand in your courage and in your strength. And may I be identified with you and not be ashamed to call you Lord. At this time, I'm going to pray as we close and at the end of our service. Um, if, you, if God is speaking to you and you don't know Jesus, I hope you'll come and speak to me or Brother Henry or one of our other pastors. Um, and if you're a Christian, I hope today you've been challenged to stay faithful. When evil seems to prevail, weep, mourn, lament, and repent. And when evil seems to prevail, use the means that are given to us by God. Act and pray. Pray and act. And then when you come to the crossroads, make sure you respond in faith, trusting God. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray you'd bless the, your word that we've heard this morning. Challenge us and convict us. Most of all, conform us to the image of Jesus. And may we cling to him, Father, and risk it all for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. Father, because we know that this temporary life is not all that there is, that we long and we long for and live for eternity when we stand before you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Father, go with us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.